God, grant us this faith. Teach us through your word. Open our eyes to see you clearly this morning. And I pray, Father, that for those of us in this congregation that are struggling with faith this morning, that cannot see your promises, that don't know how they're going to endure, encourage us this morning. Father, for those who have not been saved, God, save them by your grace through faith. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you again this morning. Um, we have the privilege to look at the topic of faith this morning. So why this topic? Why this passage? So I thought it was important for us after we looked a few weeks ago at Kirk's sermon of examine yourself to see if you are truly saved or not, to spend the next two weeks looking at the two essential elements that a person needs to do to be saved. That's repentance and faith. Faith is so important, as you may know, to the Christian walk. It informs every single thing we do. And my fear is that sometimes because it becomes part of our language, we forget its true meaning. Sometimes we don't look at it enough or we, we start to use it as, as just slang, but we forget how rich and meaningful and important faith is for each one of us especially for salvation. This passage this morning in Hebrews is a great passage. One, because it defines faith for us. It tells us specifically what it is. But not only that, it encourages us just as it encouraged the original audience of the Hebrews and sets forth three awesome examples from the Old Testament of how various saints lived by faith, saw God, were rewarded, and endured. In Hebrews, to give you a little bit of context, the big idea of the book is that Jesus is greater. So you have a congregation that is made up of uh, mostly Jewish Christians, and a lot of them are being tempted to go back into their old ways. They're being tempted to go back into um, the Jewish system that um, upheld the laws of Moses. And what the author of Hebrews is reminding them throughout the whole book, as we see in various chapters, is that Jesus is greater than the angels who mediated the covenant with Moses. Jesus is greater than Abraham. Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than Melchizedek, the priest king in the Old Testament. So we see that Jesus is greater and that all of those other things were a shadow. They were good. They were what God founded to be a shadow. But the substance is in Christ. That the Old Testament covenants and laws were pointing to something greater. And that is found in Christ alone. Can you say amen with me this morning to that truth? Amen. I'm so thankful that we are on this side of the cross. It's a little easier. In the early church, we forget maybe sometimes, especially when they were just coming out of Judaism, how intermixed that would be. But for us, we get to look back on the cross um, just as they did, but we are a little bit more separated. And a lot of us don't have to struggle with that same cultural identity. And yet, God's word still applies for us today. So not only was that a struggle for theirs, but endurance was. As we know, the book of Galatians holds out the idea of faith versus works. And it reminds us that justification, to be made right before God, is done by faith. Hebrews is a little different. Yes, it, it shows us that faith is what pleases God. But not so much works is it, is it being held up against, but it's despair. Not so much works, but despair. This congregation in the, in the Hebrew church... They were going up in, against intense persecution. We see in verse 10 
um, or chapter 10, verse 33, just before our passage, that some of them in the church were being imprisoned and being persecuted for the faith. And then as we see the whole hall of faith in chapter 11 and then in chapter 12, the, the reoccurring theme is endurance, endurance, endurance. As Christians, we can't just make one profession, walk the aisle, and be done with it and say, I've, I'm good to go. But part of walking with Christ and seeing him as Lord is continuing to walk with him even through life's hardest struggles, even with imprisonment, even with martyrdom on the horizon. So he was encouraging them that faith was the vehicle they needed to endure the persecutions and honor Christ through them. We may not be as heavily persecuted, but I imagine each one of you this morning needs to be encouraged and reminded to endure and walk in the faith. Each one of you needs to be reminded that pleasing God is only done by faith. And that I pray that as we see these words were applied so wisely to the Hebrew church that we at Camden, or Cambrian Park Baptist Church this morning would take these same truths um, and eat them. We would consume them by faith, make them part of us, and live in light of them. An analogy that I like to think of here is what I would like for us to do this morning. Some of you I see are wearing glasses. Sometimes I wear glasses, sometimes I don't. They slip with uh, my microphone on, so I don't wear them up here. But what I'd like for us to do this morning is take off our glasses. No, no, I'm not, not literally. But, and I'd like us to wipe them clean. I know for me, sometimes I let them get smudgy, and that's not good. So faith allows us to see the unseen realities that we live in, and namely God. And oftentimes, as Christians, we let our glasses get smudgy. And so th- let this morning be a chance for you to, if you are a saved believer and you're, you're enduring and you're walking uh, alongside Christ, See this sermon as an opportunity for you to take off those spiritual glasses of faith, to to cleanse them, to wipe them off, to be reminded of what true faith is, and to see him more clearly and to walk um, more um, wisely and more appropriately, appropriately in his ways. So this morning we'll see two things from our text, that true faith pleases God and produces endurance. That true faith, it pleases God and produces endurance. We see first and foremost in verses 1 through 3, we cannot understand how this would please God before we even know what faith is. So we have a great definition. Read with me in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Wonderful, awesome definition of faith. But it begs the question, what are these things we should have assurance about, and what are these things that we should be convicted of? And as the rest of the passage and the rest of scripture tells us that we should have, you and I should have an assurance that by placing our faith in Christ, we will be rewarded. An assurance that he is with us. An assurance that if God has saved us by his grace, that he will not lose us. We, have a, a, we, need, we must have an assurance. And we must also have a conviction of things hoped for. Or, or a conviction of things not seen, rather. Well, what are these things? As we see in this passage, and what's most important, we must have a deep conviction of who God is, what he's done, what he's promised, and what he commands for you and I to do. So we must have a deep conviction of not just any random thing, but namely what, who God is, what he's done, what he promises to do, and what he commands you to do. That is true faith. Now you can expand that definition out and add terms to it to clarify it, but that is a solid chunk of truth that we must hold on to. That faith 
is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So, uh, before, we, before we get further, um, I'm not much of a Greek scholar, but it's helpful to look at the way they understood the word in the Greek. Um, it's pistis, um, which in the most common construction, um, pistis ice in the New Testament, it's not just a mere intellectual believing that Christ is real, but it is an absolute transference of trust from ourselves to another, a complete surrender to God. So we know from this definition of faith that we see most commonly throughout the New Testament that it's not just intellectually knowing that Christ or trusting that he's real in our minds, but it's actually placing our complete trust, taking it from ourselves and putting it in another. It's surrendering to God. And so that faith should challenge each one of us this morning because while many of us would easily agree that we believe Christ is, is Lord and he's Savior, what we all struggle with is transferring our complete trust to him and walking in all of his ways. But that is robust biblical faith. Why do we need this? We see in verses 2 and 3, read with me if you have your Bibles open, why do we need this faith? Well, the people of old received their commendation Commendation meaning their good report um, or their reward. They were rewarded for this faith. And also, we're reminded in verse 3 that it's by faith that we can understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. And so what we're reminded of here is that we need faith in order to please God, in order to receive our commendation, just as the Old Testament saints did. We cannot do enough of religious, enough religious observances. We can't get baptized and dunked X amount of times. We can't give in a certain amount of money. We can't even read our Bibles on a daily basis apart from faith and have a reward with God to please him. That's, it's impossible. It's only through seeing him and knowing him that we can truly please him. It's so important that we grasp this as a church because apart from it, we'll go to hell. We as a church must know what true faith is and we must do all of the good works and all the things we do by faith through first seeing him clearly. We also need it to endure. Like I reminded us this morning that the main points of this passage is that faith should also produce in us an endurance. How will we endure unless we see reality clearly? When a danger or a struggle or the, the tip of a spear comes up against your face, how are you as a Christian to look at that persecution and be able to continue to walk and live and not be afraid of it? It's only through seeing all of reality clearly, which verse 3 reminds us that everything that you see with your eyes visibly was made out of what is unseen, that God has created um, everything that we see by, and he is unseen. And so it reminds us that if we are to have endurance, if we are to see reality clearly and walk uh, by faith, uh, believing who God is and obeying his commands in light of intense persecution, we must trust that, um, that it is everything that was seen is made out of what's unseen. So as Christians, it's only through faith that we can even see reality clearly and, and properly walk with Christ and be willing to, to die for him. Now, many of you may not be asked to do that, but you'll be asked to do other difficult things, to share your faith with others, to, to stand up for what is right. 
And you can only do this if you see reality clearly. If you believe by faith that what God has said to be true is more real than what those around you are saying is true, by what the world says is true. So faith is vital for us to receive commendation, approval before God, and to continue to endure. Now, while we all have a common faith, and while, the, while our faith is that of the believers of all time, that all those who God has saved, even in the Old Testament, we share their faith with them, we know that even though we share the same object of our faith, that's, that's Christ, it has a unique expression in each one of our lives. That the way your faith plays out in your life is different than the way it plays out in my life, which is different than the way it plays out in Abel, Enoch, and Noah's life. And so in order for the diverse church to grasp faith and to live it out, the author of Hebrews graciously provides us a slew of examples of how this faith looks like in practice. Now, for the sake of time, rather than grabbing all of chapter 11, I just grabbed the first seven verses and the first three examples he gives. And through seeing the life uh, of Abel, Enoch, and Noah, we're able to see how the same common faith and the same object of faith that they have plays itself out uniquely in their lives. And I pray that wherever you're at in your life and whatever unique circumstances you're going through, that the Holy Spirit would take these truths and apply them to your situation and encourage you and challenge you in them. So first, let's look at Abel's acceptable sacrifice in verse 4. So read verse 4 with me. It says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was uh, commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So Abel's sacrifice was accepted by faith. We see the context in Genesis 4, 3 through 5. We're told in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought the firstborn, firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So we see here that Abel offered a pleasing sacrifice. Now, was it because Abel was a herdsman that he brought an animal and that Cain was a farmer? Is that why God accepted Abel's sacrifice? No. We see very clearly here that it was the faith that produced the sacrifice that pleased God and that allowed Abel's gift to be accepted unlike Cain, who brought a faithless gift. But with that said, we should note here that Abel's faith was a living faith that caused him to offer the firstborn of his um, flock and their fat portions. So essentially, I know that not many of you are herdsmen, and not many of you have, uh, have farms that raise up animals or know the Levitical code, but essentially what this is saying is that Abel brought his very best that he brought the very best, the most valuable thing that he owned, he brought to God. Now, how could he do that? In an agrarian culture where your livelihood is, is, by, um, is by your animals, how could you bring your very best and trust that sacrificing it, killing this animal, would provide for, for greater reward for you? Well, by sight, that makes no sense whatsoever. You need your firstborn animal you need it for, for milk or, 
or for food for yourself and your family. It would be crazy by sight for you to kill an animal to offer it to God. And yet we see Abel doing that very thing right here. He brings his best before God. We know that the fat portions were uh, a special part of the sacrifice in the Levitical system as well, that these things were pleasing to God. So Abel's faith didn't remain in his brain, but it worked itself out through his actions. And so that challenges us this morning. Do we bring our first fruits? Do we bring our first fruits? Consider the priorities, priorities of your life. Consider what's most valuable to you. Do you hold those things with an open hand and say, God, these are yours? Do you say, God, if you want to take my car, if you want to take um, my job, do so. We say, God, if you want me, rather than idolizing my family and my children, if you want me to bring them alongside of me in, in ministry and expose them to the hardships, of, hardships of, of ministry, then, Lord, let me do so. It's seeing that my life is not my own, that God is the giver of this firstborn in the first place. He's a giver of everything valuable that you have. God has given it to you, and so it's his already. And so faith recognizes that it's his already, so it's saying, no, it's, it's not mine, it's his, and I want to show God that I love him by, and, and express that I am not reliant upon myself, but through faith, I am reliant upon you, God, and I believe that whatever reward you'll give me for the sacrifice is greater than what this material thing could give me myself. Abel believed that the reward was greater. Do you? Do you? Consider those things that you hold on to so tightly apart from God. Consider those things that you think that I need this thing to make me happy. Would you be willing to give that to God and say, God, use this for whatever means necessary. Use this for, um, to, to glorify you and to not me. Do you believe that God can provide more joy, more peace, more, in, more fulfillment than whatever other thing you might be holding on to? I pray you do so. And that's only possible through the eyes of faith. Sadly, though, many of us identify much better with Cain. Look at Cain's sacrifice. He brought, although he brought from the fruit of the ground, it says in verse 5 that, that God had no regard for his offering and that Cain's face fell and was angry. So Cain's response shows that while Cain brought something to God, he brought a sacrifice, he was a, really, he was a good religious man, that God had no regard for it. And it it wasn't because he didn't bring anything at all. It was because what he brought was brought without faith. It was brought with faithlessness. I know that I identify much more with that. That although we, we go through the week and we have our rhythms where we go to church on Wednesday and Sunday and we even do our Bible readings, it's easy to fall into a rut. It's easy to, to forget about the object of our faith and how glorious and amazing he is and to just just keep offering sacrifices so that others don't think we're, we're bad Christians, but start to do so without the eyes of faith. You can tell when, when this happens, whenever your reaction is like Cain's, whenever your face falls, whenever you get jealous, whenever you get angry, whenever you are not like Moses in, his, in the presence of God, be, where you come away with a glowing face, with a joy, with feeling restored, that's one indicator that, that maybe you are doing all of the right things, but you're doing them without faith. And that, that way, it's, it's deadly. 
It's a very dangerous thing. It's even, it's more dangerous than just not being a religious person at all, because you think you're drawing near to God, but you're not. Our hearts, consider our hearts just in this corporate worship service this morning. We don't really believe the songs we sing. We don't believe them. We don't believe the words we read. We don't believe the prayers we pray. If we did, our lives would look a lot different, and our lives would have much more peace. We are often distracted and preoccupied in the corporate worship service. Even right now, you might be tempted for, to allow your mind to wander to, to lunch or to something later. Even as I'm preaching, I know that my mind can go in a bunch of different directions. Do we come to corporate worship service and say that I put in my time, and then we go and we leave unchanged? This gathering, saints, while it, it doesn't save anyone by itself, is a, a special time for God's church to gather on the Lord's Day to worship Him corporately. That this time has been set aside, and you must leave here changed by God. If you came by faith, and you sought God, and you truly were impacted by His words, then you would leave changed. And I fear that too often times, we go months and years without seeing any growth in our lives. We say, what's going on? I'm going to church. Well, you're going to church, but are you there? You're sitting in front of your Bible and you're opening it in the morning, but are you there? You're praying, but do you believe that God will answer those prayers? Are you crying with tears that those around you who aren't saved would be saved? Sadly, and it's convicting for me, too, that, that oftentimes this isn't the case, that I identify much more with Cain. That, like Cain, you and I, we crave acceptance. We do anything we can to avoid disapproval. We go from people loving to people pleasing. We see here that Cain was most likely upset and angry because his brother bought, brought the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. And so rather than Cain actually coming by faith, trying to offer a sacrifice to God, he was, he was looking horizontally at his brother's sacrifice. We've seen that theme come up through a lot of these sermons recently. So when we, when we live for people's acceptance, we oftentimes are like Cain in that we, we offer a faithless sacrifice. How, how wicked is that? People who call themselves Christian, who who have the name of Christ, would say that, yes, I believe this object of my faith, faith is the most beautiful, radiant thing in the universe, and yet I don't want to look at him. You would not say that about your new bride, would you, husbands? <laughs> I pray not. So let us be rightly convicted by Cain and see what Abel, how Abel offered sacrifice by faith. In contrast to Cain's and our faithlessness, on the opposite side of the spectrum, we're upheld this man Enoch, we see in verses 5 and 6. Read with me. It says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So here we see Enoch, there's not much written about him in Genesis. It says that he walked with God and then he was not. 
Um, but the author of Hebrews found him important enough to include here. Why? We see that Enoch's unusual reward of being taken up into heaven was because the object of Enoch's faith was God himself. Spurgeon had a great quote. It said, For Enoch, it was less a thing to be taken up to heaven than it was to please God. So it wasn't, so oftentimes we think how crazy is it that this man was just taken up into heaven, but Spurgeon reminds us that it's an even crazier, outstanding thing that it says that this man walked with God. To live for 365 years in constant communion with God as he did, to be ever-pleasing God was a mighty triumph of faith. That is, the, that is the greater surprise here, that Enoch could be said to have walked with God. We see that um, in verse 6, it says that, you know, for us to be rewarded, we must believe God exists and believe there's a reward. Now, on the surface, you might say, well, that's not, that's not that special. I mean, yeah, tons of people believe God exists. And yeah, there's a ton of people who are going to church this morning because they want a reward from God. They want to be blessed. They're, they're, and so why, if Enoch related to God in this way, what, what's special about that? Why is he lifted up and commended here? It's because the reward that Enoch received was the gift that he sought. Let me explain. Enoch sought God. He wanted to walk with him. He trusted that God existed, and he trusted that he would be rewarded for following him. Enoch wasn't walking with God so that he could get something else, so that he could get a, a better standing in his family, so that he could get a bigger farm. Enoch walked with God because Enoch wanted to be with God. That Enoch's reward in life, his, what, what fulfilled him, what he longed for each and every day, was to be in the presence of God. He believed that by walking by faith with God, that he would receive God, that he would obtain the very thing that he was seeking. Now, I think that, you know, that doesn't seem far out there. We all agree with that. But how many of us, how many of us can say that God is our greatest reward? Enoch faithfully believed he would be rewarded. God was his reward. But how many of you find your fulfillment, find your pleasure in things outside of God? That you ask God in prayer for things, for God to change circumstances in your life, but you, you, you skimp on the side of praising God and reflecting on his attributes. How many of you train like an Olympian for the prize of being with God because you know it's so great? I'm convicted whenever I see the Olympics like this last summer, thinking about how many hours they put into this, this gold medal that just will sit, maybe, maybe they'll get it framed and hang it up on their wall somewhere. Spending four years of their life training hard each and every day, waking up at early hours, grinding long and hard, putting their blood, sweat, and tears into something that they will just eventually hang on their wall if they win gold, or they might get clapped for, put on a Wheaties box for a few months, and then forgotten, right? How many of us, seeing a better reward than a gold medal, God himself, train as hard or harder than Olympians? Is the prize better? I hope so. I hope you agree with me. The prize of knowing God, of having God, of walking with him is much better than a gold medal. 
Do we train as hard? Oftentimes we don't. Oftentimes we do not press into God. We do not follow him by faith. Use the means of grace to increase our faith because we don't really believe we'll be rewarded. A lot of times we, we open our, our Bible in the morning because out of duty and not expecting that in doing so, I will be blessed, that I will be rewarded. It, it might not be a, a tangible, immediate thing. You might not walk away every single morning. But through the consistent means of grace, we come away rewarded in having a greater intimacy with God in our lives. And that is what we were created for, and that is what we should all long for. Enoch was commended because he walked with God, and he got what he wanted. He, he longed for God so much that God cut his life short. The average age uh, in that time in Genesis was around 700 years old. Enoch got taken at 365 years, and so God said, you know what? You've been a faithful servant, and I'm just going to take you home with me so that you can have an even, an even more full experience of my presence so that your faith can turn to sight. Now, I put Enoch before you, and the, the author of Hebrews puts him before you, not so that you can say, oh, I'm, I'm so great like Enoch, or I, God take me too. We should be convicted, saints, that we do not walk with God like this. That just as Spurgeon pointed out, that it's an amazing thing that Enoch could have been said to please God for this long. How many of you can go through a day without sinning? None. Every day, you and I displease God. Every day, you and I break his laws, do not love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Every day, we don't love our neighbor as ourself. We think selfish thoughts, and we're, we're motivated by our own selfish ambitions, and we do not please God. You and I are not Enoch. We do not deserve to be in God's presence like Enoch. You and I are more like Cain. We offer a faithless sacrifice. And yeah, we still come to church, and yeah, we still do all the things, but oftentimes our faith is weakened is because we are, we are so enamored with the world. And our sight, has, our sight of what we see physically has blinded out whatever we've heard spiritually through his word. And, and we're, we forget who God is. We forget how magnificent and how glorious and how radiant the Son of God is, the object of our faith. It grows too dim. We start to, to walk by sight. God ultimately, a lot of times, is not functionally our reward. If true faith includes loving God with all of who we are, then all of us fall short. We displease God. Now, if that were the end of the sermon, it would be discouraging. And that's, that's the reality of who we are. We are sinners through and through, and we sin against God every day. But our last example holds out hope for each and every one of us. Hope that faith is not something that you can conjure up in and of yourself, that you don't just need to go out and try harder with, but that faith is a gift, and God can have favor even on you. Our last saint that is held out before us is Noah. Read with me in verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Do any of you remember the story of Noah? 
you remember what happened, why God needed to send the flood, is because God looked down on earth, and the thoughts and intentions of the heart of man was only what continually? Evil. It was only evil. Noah was included in that crowd. Noah was sinning against God, and the intentions and thoughts of his heart were wicked and were evil. That man had turned and rebelled against God. And yet, we read in verse 8 of Genesis 6, it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That God decided to choose Noah by his grace to be like a second Adam to restart humanity and so that Noah and his household would be saved on the ark instead of being destroyed on the flood. We are like Noah and that our thoughts, our motives are wicked. They are not pleasing to God. Oftentimes we, we think about worldly things and, we, uh, and we, we are faithless in our religion. And yet we have hope here that just like Noah, we can be the recipient of, uh, of, of God's grace. And because it is a gift, not something that we do by ourselves, each one of us can have this faith. And each one of us can have hope that no matter how bad we've been, no matter how, b- how much we fall short of the example of Enoch or Christ, that we can be saved. We read in Hebrews 12, 24, that the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So going back to the Cain and Abel example, what we didn't read, I hope you remember, is that Cain murdered Abel, and that Abel's blood was said to, to, to speak on his behalf, to, to cry out from the ground. And yet we're told in Hebrews 12 that Christ's blood speaks a better word. And what does that mean and why is that relevant? I'll tell you why. It's because Abel's blood, the word that it spoke was vengeance, that God will have justice on Cain and all who act wickedly. How does Christ's blood speak a better word? Christ's blood doesn't just call out and cry out for vengeance from the ground, but Christ's blood cries out for forgiveness. It cries out for grace. And that is how you and I can have hope hope this morning. You and I, like Cain, deserve vengeance. We deserve the wrath of God because of our faithless works. Because we have sinned against an infinitely holy God, we deserve an infinitely horrible punishment and eternity in hell. Your hands and my hands were like Cain's hands who killed the innocent Abel. That we all have blood on our hands and we deserve for Abel's blood to cry out vengeance upon each each and every one of us. In Acts, we're told that we are part of the guilty party that called for Christ to be crucified. That you and I, whenever we sin, what we do is we add another stripe to the back of Christ. That we deny that Christ is Lord and the very sin that Christ had to die for, we added to that. That should disgust you. That should cause you to, to, to weep and to be, to, to be sobered up and to say, God, this is who I am, and, and how could I do this to your precious son? And yet, while we, with, with vengeful, angry hands like Cain, put to death the Son of God on the cross, rather than Christ saying, have vengeance upon them, Christ said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He could only say that because on the cross, what Christ did is he took all of your faithlessness 
on himself. That Christ was nailed to a tree and with it was nailed your and my faithlessness and all who would repent and believe. That Christ being the only perfect faithful one who never had a lapse of faith, that walked perfectly with God, and that even though he lived by sight, he escaped in the early mornings to the mountains to pray, to, to, to see God by faith, to know him and to walk in his ways. That this Christ died on your behalf so that rather than justice, you could receive grace. Because Christ took your justice for you and his blood can cry out forgiveness for you instead of vengeance. What good news for us this morning. What good news that I don't have to just tell you it's plain and simple, figure it out, you have faith. But that we understand that faith is in Christ alone, and it's by grace alone. It's a, it's a gift of God that must be wrought in our hearts before we can possibly see. Faith in Christ alone brings us eternal life, so that you and I, even though we might die, we have the same hope Enoch had, that through faith, we too could walk with God, not on our, our own righteousness, but on Christ's. And even though you and I will taste death, 1 Corinthians reminds us that, oh, death, where is your sting? That death has lost its sting, that death is no longer a thing you have to fear, but it is a mere shadow. And that you will be one day, if you are in Christ, taken up into the presence of God to walk, walk with him like Enoch did, and like how Enoch is walking with him to this day. That you, that same promise of the reward that Enoch received, to have the, the God's presence, to have intimacy with your creator, you can hold that same reward as well through faith in Christ because it's God's gift that he holds out to mankind. I'm so thankful that Noah is given, an, is given to us as an example here because it shows someone that is evil and yet has found favor in the eyes of God, not on the basis of his own goodness. Me, knowing, being very acquainted with my sin, knowing how sinful of a man I am, I need that grace. We need that grace this morning of God. We need, even on our worst day, to know that God loves us and that through Christ, God, lo does, not love, God does not love us any less. But in our, even on our worst days, that God has compassion on us and he wants to grow our faith. He wants to cause us to repent and turn and see him clearly. Noah did that. So for our final point, let's, work at, let's look at Noah's tenacious work to see how he ran hard after God in his final days. In verse 7, we read that Noah, being warned by God concerning the events to come, that he constructed the ark out of reverent fear. Now, many of you might be thinking, well, he obviously did that by faith, but that this says fear. In my mind, fear and faith are kind of opposites. But here, we're reminded that this reverent fear is an expression of how faith should look, not just in Noah's life, but in your and my life as well. Because while Noah had, was aware of a coming judgment that he knew would happen because he had faith in what God told him, you and I, like Noah, are living in light of, by faith, knowing that there's a coming judgment for us as well. And there's a coming judgment for this world. And the only hope for them and for you and I is to get into the ark of Christ. So because we have a saving faith and we can have that in Christ that's gifted to us, you and I should respond out of reverent fear as well. 
how many of your friends and family members would look at you and describe your, your walk of faith as a, a reverent fear? That's tough. I know that sometimes we, we are Christian, and we, but our lives kind of look trivial, or, or we're known for our sarcasm, we're known for joking. We, we engage in things of the world, and we're not very serious about separating ourselves. But we're told here that a true faith in God will produce reverent fear in us. Why? Because faith allows us to see the unseen. It allows us to see the realities of heaven and hell and the destination of people apart from Christ. And it allows us to have the right fear that unless we share the gospel with them, unless God saves them, that their destination is hell. And so no matter how hard and difficult your life will get, you, like Noah, can grab your tools and go and construct your ark for the day. That no matter how many people mock you, laugh at you for your faith, or try to put you down, no matter how improbable it might seem, you must persevere, and you can through faith like Noah did, because you know there's a coming judgment. And because you love people well enough, their mocking and their ridicule will not even bother you, because you should be compelled and driven by a reverent fear of God. A fear that knows that there is a, something worse than the flood coming. And that's, that's the, the fiery judgment of the wrath of God. So each one of us should say, how, God, can I this day wake up and have reverent fear upon my heart and mind to walk in your ways and to do whatever vocation you've called me to do for your glory, constrained by Christ to do it with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength because we know that in the end, it's worth it. We know that we have no other choice because there's no matter how much comfort or joy or, or pain or sorrow or agony we can have right now, it pales in comparison to that agony that will happen on Judgment Day. And by faith, we can live in light of that. Not only can we hold out the warnings of hell, but we can also hold out to them the great reward and the rewards there are in Christ. That in Christ, that they can have forgiveness of sins. That in Christ, the unsaved people around us can have a new life and have assurance that when they die, they can be with their Savior. True faith is all-consuming. It says here that by this, Noah condemned the world. And so you have to be ready, brothers and sisters, that when you live a life by faith, you don't have to go around nitpicking all the unsaved people around you, saying, oh, this is wrong and that's wrong. There's a time for that, but you simply walking by faith, that's a, that, that condemns them more than any of your words could. That you showing that what, what you live by, what prioritizes your life and what you live for, when you do that, you show them that you're living in light of reality. You're pointing to God who is unseen, and you're reminding them that they are, they are condemned. And that should warn them properly, and it should provide you an opportunity to hold out the great reward of Christ. I want each of us to ask ourselves this morning, what is my ark work? What is, what is God calling me to do that will help God's faithful, that in, in Noah's case, his family, but in our case, God's family, God's people, what will help 
God's people escape judgment and persevere despite all the ridicule? How can I grow and build the church? And how can I engage in this building of the ark, in this reverent fear, to remind those and to cry out to those who are perishing, come, step into the ark. Come, receive Christ while there is time left. I pray that you consider the great example of Noah this morning. Not because you can be righteous like Noah, not because you can conjure up that reverent fear, but that God can gift that to you by grace. I pray this morning that if you have, if you identified with Cain and you felt like, I don't know if my life has changed much in the past year. I might be doing this religion thing, but I don't know how much of it is actually led by faith. Then I want you this morning to be reminded that it is true faith that pleases God. Go back and look at Christ. He is revealed in his scriptures. Engage in the means of grace. And allow them to not only remind you of the great reward there is in walking with God, but also allow them to give you a, a strong and hearty, um, a hearty uh, power so that you can endure in light of the, the hardest persecution. I pray that you do this, and I pray that Christ does this in this church. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for not having a, a conviction of the things unseen, God. Forgive us for following tradition or, or getting into cycles of, of religion. Lord, forgive us for shirking back from doing the hard things that you've called us to do and not being driven by faith. Forgive our fuzzy eyesight that does not see you clearly for looking at the world so much that it, that it dims our view of your glorious nature. Father, I pray that you would dust off our, our foggy glasses this morning, give us new eyes of faith so that we might see you and walk in your ways. Thank you, God, that you can extend this faith to us as a gift as you did with Noah. That no matter how wicked we might be, we are never too far from your grace. Lord, give us the eyes of faith so that we as a church might tell people about the great ark that they can be saved in. That ark is Christ. Father, do this great work this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.